Good afternoon. Today is Wednesday, the 31st of May, 2023, just after one o'clock. Welcome to UK Column News. Your host today, Mike Robinson, and myself, Brian Gerrish. And we are delighted to be joined by our nursing correspondent, Debbie Evans. And we're going to get straight on here with the NHS and the NHS app. So uh, let's bring this on screen. Uh, the NHS very pleased to let us all know that the NHS app is fast becoming the digital front door to the NHS. And new features have been added to improve patient experience and support elective care recovery, as well as helping reduce ongoing pressure on the health service. Well, of course, if you force everybody to use an app, which uh, you're most commonly uh, needing customers being the elderly, aren't able to use and of course it's going to uh, reduce the pressure on the uh, health service so the new features include the ability to use all appointments to see all appointments and referrals in one place in the nhs app as well as book change and cancel hospital appointments currently they say these are live in the 28 acute trusts across the seven english nhs regions which have this functionality Many more will expect are expected to join over the coming months. Now, this is being done under the auspices of what's called the Accelerated Capability Environment (brackets ACE), uh, and this is uh, and the ACE has been a strategic partner uh, in the use of uh, the newer and more innovative ways to help tackle the problems of the NHS and the NHS app. So, I was quite interested to know what is ACE? What is this Accelerated Capability Environment? Well, here it is from the gov.uk website. And uh, well, I thought we'd just have a look at a couple of the uh, sort of main topic areas that they're discussing on their blog here. Uh, so ACE Research Network growing further together. So ACE brought together government customers, government has customers now, you know, uh, academics and businesses from across the Northwest at the first of a series of events designed to extend the regional reach of our research network. That's the, the top story at the moment on the blog, but that's, let's just have a look at some of the other stuff here. Getting industry perspective on frontline policing, that's part of ACE as well. Okay, well, that's not too health related, but okay, let's keep going. Uh, scaling the accelerated capability environment through renewed public-private partnerships. Maybe we get a clue as to what's going on there a little bit more. Now let's scroll on down the page a bit. Exploring how AI can make this the NHS more effective and efficient. So that's part of ACE too. So who is behind this? Well, the lead organization behind the uh, behind ACE is, in fact, Kinetic, the defense contractor. Um, and they uh, have this thing called the Vivius framework. So let's just have a look and see what they say about this. They say the accelerated capability environment solves rapidly changing digital challenges facing law enforcement and national security agencies. So they're now getting involved in the health service and the NHS app. Uh, we bring together, they say, experts from industry and academia to innovate collaboratively and create mission and impact at pace typically weeks and months rather than months and years, typical of large delivery programs. Uh, they go on to say, we are a home office capability within the Homeland Security Group that was founded in March 2017 with an initial priority of helping solve frontline challenges in the area of communications data and lawful intercept. Um, so then this becomes a very interesting situation because, Debbie, my question then is, uh, what is the NHS app? Is it, in fact, about creating the digital front door to the NHS, or is it more about data collection uh, and lawful intercept of data that's uh, traveling through the NHS app? And is this about healthcare, or is this more about some kind of military industrial uh, effort, some kind of fusion between defense, uh, the government, private corporations, healthcare, and so on? It just seems like a very interesting uh, little nest of vipers here. Yeah, I think it's more than a, a nest of vipers here, Mike. I think it's surveillance. This is all about data. We've been talking about how precious data is for a very long time. And, you know, you mentioned the, the Homeland Security Group. I mean, yes, we are looking at military. Um, we are looking at something very sinister. And I think the NHS app is just the start to a one app for everything. So in the end, you're going to be able to do your banking, all your healthcare records. You're not going to be able to access anything that we access today without the app, which is why I'm suggesting that as the NHS want that as the front door, we slam it in their faces because they can't function unless we all sign up to the app. Yeah. 
Well, I, I, where it started out, Mike, I, I just picked up on your, I think it was your first slide, and it's saying that uh, it's a research network. So in the first place, it's not designed to deliver a result because it's a network of research which is ongoing. So this is not delivering a product which is going to be beneficial. This is re research. Um, but yeah, it's very clear that what you've got here is a fusion of data and this is not going to protect people or make them better or cure illnesses. This is principally about tracking every asp aspect of their lives. But the, the cynicism really of this um, or the cynical nature of this so-called initiative for me comes back with the basic fact of how many older people can actually use apps and the answer is very, very few of them. So this, this is never going to help elderly people. This is only uh, this is only a sop to their so-called AI and high technology policy. I mean, in, in my local village where there are, I suppose the average age is quite high, um, what do I hear on a daily basis that nobody can get a GP's appointment? Uh, they can be telephoning all morning and they still won't get an appointment. So are they going to use an app? Of course, they're not going to use an app. Um, okay, Debbie, let's move on to the MHRA then. And uh, well, we're making collaboration or the collaboration with uh, other countries' regulators. We're building an Uber regulator, it seems. Yeah, we are. We're all part. Uh, many people will have heard me talk about the Access Consortium before now. And this is basically when we left Brexit. What does the what role does the MHRA play? Well, we're going to have to jump into collaboration with other countries. So Access Consortium is Australia, Canada, Singapore and Switzerland. We only joined in 2020. So now it looks like um, everybody within the NHS, which is all of us here in the UK, let's face it, we're going to be the uh, experimental lab rats to get uh, breakthrough drugs fast-tracked um, into our system by foreign regulators. So the, the, the Express carried this story. And, um, you know, it just goes to show that we are going to become the experimental lab rats. And, and not only that, you know, the, the situation gets worse because we're going to be encouraging GPs as well to trial drugs. Um, everybody in the UK that is involved in the NHS, which we can't opt out of, we are going to be used as the experimental lab rats. There you can see GPs urged to trial experimental drugs on patients. And this is, of course, being cleared by the MHRA. They've been told to cut the red tape and speed up approvals for medicines. And it's also been asked to approve clinical trials within 60 days of submission. Now, this all follows the O'Shaughnessy review and the O'Shaughnessy report where they are absolutely desperate to, to speed up clinical trials as fast as they possibly can. And they're going to use the UK first. Not only that, they're going to incentivize our GPs to do it. So uh, I can see now where the Lord O'Shaughnessy report comes in, because perhaps now if we're not going to give doctors pay rises, we're going to make up for it with incentivizing them to ex use experimental lotions and potions on us. And the way they're going to do it is they're going to apply through something called the National Clinical Impacts Awards. And this is a, a .gov.uk. So how are GPs going to be paid and are they going to be paid for experimenting on us? And will we know if those experiments are even taking place? Um, so, Debbie, the, the thing that struck me when I read the uh, MHRA's press release on this uh, was it seemed like uh, they one of the mechanisms that they were going to use to fast track drugs was that they were just going to take uh, a foreign regulator's word for it. So if the Australian foreign regulator decided that the Australian regulator decided that a particular drug was satisfactory, then by default, that would become satisfactory in the UK as well. Uh, so uh, rather there, the, than there being so, any kind of validation between countries, then the word of one country is just taken. Um, and uh, so that seemed like a step backwards in terms of uh, patient safety to me. Yeah, they have indeed um, decided that. But they have added the caveat that, of course, they will do the MHRA, will still be the sovereign regulator for the United Kingdom and therefore will take decisions in the best interests, which we know aren't, in the best interests of the UK population. So they did add that caveat. Yeah. 
And uh, Debbie, what pops into my head is that uh, some time ago, over a year ago, you were able to establish that GPs were running trials, but their agreement with the drug company was um, was that um, that was private. So you discovered, I believe, by accident what was going on, but the average patient would have no idea that trials were be being conducted and all their own data was included. No, and this comes back to what I've been talking about for a very long time, CPRD. This is the register that your GP may have signed up to with the MHRA. But more to that, uh, more on that as, as we go along, because as I was trawling the internet, as I do every single week for material on either the MHRA or Dame June Rain, I found a very freshly published lecture from Dame June Rain. It's called Translating Science into Healthcare. What is the regulator's role? Now, as you can see, I was only the 10th person to see this. It's very fresh and it's very, very important that people look at this. This was a lecture she delivered on behalf of the PHG. Now, all I'm going to say about the PHG is that they're a think tank based in Cambridge and they uh, used to be called Public Health Genomics. So just bear that in mind, the word genomics. So without further ado, let's just jump in to Dame June Rain's world just for a minute. It really reinforces the challenge that I and my organisation face about supporting science into health. And so what I would like to do in taking you into the world I live in, the regulator's world, is to talk about how that world is changing, enabling as a regulator, rather than being a watchdog or a policeman or some of these more traditional ideas, building on the learnings of the pandemic, then talking about how we are actually delivering innovation. The regulatory approaches, particularly the partnerships we're now fostering, and I think today is redolent with partnerships. And then finally, more important than perhaps any of the other uh, aspects I'll cover, is realising the opportunities of new data, genomic methodologies and regulatory science. So there you have it, regulatory science. You know, and by the way, who changed the definition of a regulator? You know, who decided? Because it's quite uh, an important question and it's an important question I would like to ask Dame June Rain. But clearly you can see that we're going into data. This is all about data. And I've just got a couple of slides from the presentation just to illustrate how important data is. So the first one that you'll see there on screen now. I've underlined everywhere where it says data. Do you see how important data is? And then if you follow on to the next slide, you'll see that she very much highlights strength and safety surveillance and greater use of real world data for evaluating signals, long-term safety data. And there you can see I've highlighted the CPRD. Again, this is the link between your GP and the MHRA. And then they talk about real world data and real world data to support safety and innovation. There again, you can see the reference to CPRD. And there's one more slide there to show uh, new guidelines on use of real world data. And you can see that the MHRA guideline on randomized controlled trials using real world data to support regulatory decisions. I've got another clip from that video um, of Dame June Rain, where she talks about regulatory science, whatever that means. Um, I mean, listen carefully. She also says that data saves lives. Well, my argument would be perhaps that data costs lives. And then she says very revealingly that patients are the biggest reporters. And I'm finding Dame June Rain's uh, body language uh, very upbeat. She seems to be boasting and she seems to be full of herself. So let's just have a look at a second clip of Dame June Rain. How are we going to be using new data sources? Absolutely putting genomics like a stick of rock throughout regulation and regulatory science, whatever that may mean. We know since Ben Goldegg delivered his very important report that there is work to be done to be a trusted uh, environment for research and that work I'm pleased to say is ongoing and the government's response data saves lives is absolutely nailing our colours to the mast. We are the guardians of an important data set 
the clinical practice research data link. And it's, it's a responsibility to make sure that that is used to its absolute fullest potential. Traditionally, our real-world data source, including CPRD, has been used in a really very planned way to conduct epidemiological studies, usually on drug safety signals. And I'm talking here about the regulatory use. It's been really important. We wouldn't have shown pertussis vaccine was safe in the third trimester without carefully planned academic studies. We wouldn't have had the really rather rapid knowledge working with the London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine around risks like Guillain-Barre um, or Bell's palsy with the COVID vaccines. So that hand-in-hand -hand approach with academia, but a very traditional utilisation of our data. But now that we're connecting through our monitoring systems, Safety Connect, with patients, our biggest reporter during COVID, that half a million or so reports on the COVID vaccines largely came from patients and the public expressing what they understood about safety to us, starts to open the door for more and more interesting utilisation of data that only patients can give us. So as you can see, they're very hungry for data and Dame June Rain doesn't actually even know what regulatory science means because she clearly says that. So I just want to show you a little bit about the CPRD health sprint. Now, this is uh, another slide that she I would advise everybody to go and have a look at the YouTube in entirety. The more views, the better, because then they know that we're watching them. But you can see there that we're looking at the CPRD sprint, patient location and recruitment. They are absolutely desperate. So let's reinforce it with another slide so that you get the picture that what they're looking at is real world data. But what does that actually mean? What does that translate to? So we've talked a lot about pharmacovigilance, and I think most of our audience know what that is now. But now we've got a whole new subject, and this is pharmacogenomics. So what is pharmacogenomics? Pharm pharmacogenomics is basically your genes. So it's a field of research that studies how a person's genes affect how he or she responds to medications. Do you see where this is going? Serious adverse reactions. It's a long-term goal is to help doctors select the drugs and doses best suited for each patient, for each person. It is part of the field of precision medicine, which aims to treat each patient individually. So here clearly we can see this precision medicine and we're going into something called personalized prescribing. And this is what Dame June Rain was talking about, personalized prescribing. So what does that actually mean? Well, you know what? This has been going on a long time. Since 2013, I found a paper from the National Institute of General Medical Sciences, NIH, and it's entitled Using Genes to Guide Prescriptions. So how are we using data to prevent, is that what we're saying, to prevent serious adverse reactions? Here's another very short clip on what's happening to our yellow card data. And bear in mind that you're gonna hear the mention of neonates in this clip. So this is the final clip from this YouTube of Dame June Rain. Pre-treatment genetic testing. How good is that data? And could we actually see this moving into reality? Well, I'm delighted to say, and I know Genomics England, I hope, would say exactly the same thing. We are on the cusp of moving forward to maximising the use of our yellow card data to be able to study in depth through whole genome sequencing what those risks are. And I think anyone who listened to the news that neonates would now be tested for gentamicin ototoxicity risk might have asked, when was that genetic mutation first discovered? 25 years ago. We've waited 25 years. We shouldn't be having to do that. It should be a systematic approach so that we are then able to translate science into healthcare without unnecessary delay. The PREPARE study, you may have seen in The Lancet, actually showed that preemptive testing using this 12-gene pharmacogenetic panel would actually reduce the clinically relevant adverse drug reactions by about a third. 
So there you have it. Do do new parents know that their newborns are going to be screened? Have they given permission? Have they given consent? Do they know what their newborns are going to be screened for? So the clear plan is to genomic sequence all of us so that they can eliminate serious adverse reactions. So no one's to blame. You have to blame your genes. So to reinforce that, there's another slide, couple of slides, and then that's the end of this segment. But basically, we will be using genomic data to prevent adverse reactions. That's the way forward. And the MHRA is no longer a regulator as we would expect a regulator to be. It's an enabler. So there you have it. Dame June Rain. Um, yes, sorry, there is a couple of slides there. Pharmacogenomics and drug safety. You can see there, look at, right at the top, how much money it costs the NHS due to hospital admissions. And then onto the, um, the next slide, which is using genomic data to prevent adverse reactions. And you can clearly see there, I've, I've marked it in red. We're looking for a data pool. Yellow card biobank starts on June the 1st. And this again is going to be genomic sequencing. So in summary, just absolutely very quickly in summary, the role of the regulator is changing from watchdog to enabler, building on the learnings from the COVID-19 pandemic. Our focus is supporting access to safe innovation, maximizing use of new science tools and technology. Partnerships with purpose will be key to delivery with focus on driving pathway from discovery to employment de deployment. So again, my big question is, who changed the definition of regulator? Uh, Debbie, that's an absolute key question. Just as a little summary, I, I've, I've been following very carefully what you've been delivering there. So we've got the MHRA, which says it's not a regulator. It's not there to control what's going on and to protect the public. It's going to be a partner with the drug industry in developing new um, uh, new products. And those are increasingly going to be have a genomic component. Uh, they're going to be an enabler. They're going to help the drug industry to make more profits. And then this cavalier attitude where she talked about a stick of rock while she's uh, laughing to herself. I found what came into my mind was the, uh, the story. Let's take one drug, sodium valparate. And as a result of that drug, thousands, over 30,000 young children were damaged. And of course, the first child that died, Helena Bai, uh, her mother is still fighting for the truth about that case. But what's June Rain saying? Well, we don't really care about people reporting damage from pharmaceutical products or jabs uh, via the yellow cards. We got 500,000, ha, ha, ha. But that is simply going to enable us to work as a partner with the drug industry making more profits. This woman is, except, in my opinion, she's exceptionally dangerous because if she believes what, what she's saying, and I think she does, she's not interested in public uh, health safety. She is simply caught up in this, in the future, everything will be okay. And the scientists who failed to date to produce safe drugs will be in a drug driven utopia. I mean, Mike, I don't, I don't know what else to say, but June Rain is not fit for purpose. Well, that, that is a fair point. Don't we'll, have anything to add, really. We'll leave it to the audience to think about that. Well, if this is what's happening to for the UK public, that uh, we've got um, safety out of the window, of course, we can get more deaths in, in Ukraine. And let's have a look at how things are going. Well, things are not going well in Ukraine because the Western narrative is falling apart. And we can get a clue to this by actually having a look at the sheer propaganda that's now coming out of agencies uh, such as the uh, UK Ministry of Defence. So this was part of a little tweet um, earlier today. Since the start of May 2023, Russia has increasingly ceded the initiative in the conflict and is reacting to Ukrainian action rather than actively progressing towards its own war aims. Now, this is a simply ridiculous claim because the reality on the battlefield is that Russia has forced Ukrainian troops into what is a meat grinder, both in the um, the assault on uh, 
uh, Bakhmut, where the, where the Ukrainians poured more and more troops in who were killed and maimed and injured. But of course, we've now got uh, Ukrainian attacks against fortified Russian positions. And the only result of those attacks is more Ukrainian casualties. So Ukraine, the reality is that Ukraine is being bled dry of troops under intense Russian shelling. No, there is no short shortage of Russian shells. Intense Russian shelling and air attacks across all fronts. Um, the Ministry of Defense went on to say that during May 2023, Russia has launched 20 nights, 20 nights of uh, uncrewed aerial vehicle and cruise missile attacks deep inside Ukraine. Russia has had little success in its likely aims of neutralizing Ukraine's improved air defenses and destroying uh, Ukrainian counterattack forces. On the ground, it has redeployed security forces to react to partisan attacks inside Western Russia. Well, the reality is that Russia has already destroyed the Ukrainian air force and it's largely destroyed the Ukrainian air defenses, including the delivered Patriot systems. And the recent Ukrainian swarm drone attack on Moscow with anywhere between 20 and 30 drones was simply defeated by Russian air defenses and their electronic warfare systems. A couple of the smaller drones did hit buildings, but overwhelmingly in military uh, terms, the Russian defense was truly remarkable. I'll come on to that in a minute. NATO-sponsored attacks by Ukraine inside Russia have been neutralized by the border security forces and the Russian Air Force and didn't involve any significant extra troops on the Russian side. Uh, Maud went on to say that operationally Russian commanders are likely attempting to generate reserve forces and position them where they believe a Ukrainian counterattack will occur. However, this has probably been undermined by uncommitted forces instead being sent to fill gaps in the front line around Bakhmut. This is more nonsense because the reality is that Russia now has some 500,000 men in reserve and is well placed to deal with any major Ukrainian counterattack. Um, but the uh, the reports from Ukraine and on the battlefield increasingly suggest there will be no major Ukrainian uh, counterattack because they simply do not have the troops or the material. Um, this is uh, another tweet here, and this one tells us even more. It says uh, uh, the comment by the chief of defense intelligence, Adrian Byrd, who was speaking at a Rusi event, the pace of technical Technological change will allow our adversaries to achieve a rapid evolution in their capability to challenge the UK and our interests, and we must keep pace. This comment is very significant because the reality is that Russia's demonstrated that US, UK, EU and NATO, uh, those organisations have no defence against its hypersonic missile capability, nor do they have any offensive or defensive capability against Russia's integrated air defence systems. And importantly, Russia has demonstrated that uh, the US, UK, EU and NATO has no defense against Russian electronic warfare systems, particularly in their capability against Western drone and long range guided missile systems. So the storm shadows thrown in, of course, have failed as a result of hitting these Russians, of, of, of being disabled by these Russian systems. And the real reality that we can see in this uh, tweet is actually panic that there's realization that Russia now outstrips the US, UK, EU and NATO in its ability to assemble manpower and its huge shell and munitions production, which outstrips the whole of the EU and the US combined, and its ability to produce battlefield weapons and sensors, which are performing and outperforming uh, US and NATO equipment. Um, but here we are in UK. This is apparently the most important thing that we have King Charles giving medals to troops for pulling uh, the Queen's uh, state gun carriage. This is very important. Um, so we can't field a proper army. We can't fight a major war 
but we've got plenty of medals for pulling a state gun carriage. This is fantasy land, and uh, the king should be, uh, should be appalled at his own behavior, because if he was doing his job with all the dripping gold braid, he would be looking into the real issue as to why the, ministry, uh, why the military's been undermined. But instead, we've got a pantomime of issuing medals Yes. Okay. Well, let's move on to uh, the Zaporozhye nuclear power plant situation. And uh, well, here is uh, the head of the International Atomic Energy Agency, Rafael Grossi, speaking at uh, the UN Security Council yesterday. Uh, he was presenting a five-point plan uh, on how to protect and how to keep the Zaporozhye nuclear power plant protected in Ukraine. Uh, now, a key issue that he raised was the fact that electricity supplies have been cut off to the power plant on several occasions, uh, and that required then for therefore that uh, cooling water and so on uh, pumps for that were being powered by uh, new, uh, diesel generators instead. Let's just have a look at a quick uh, video clip just to get an impression of what he was saying. There have been seven occasions when the site lost all of site power and had to rely on emergency, on emergency diesel generators, which is, as you know, the last line of defense against a nuclear accident to provide essential cooling of the reactor and spent fuel. The last one, the seventh, occurred just one week ago. We are fortunate that a nuclear accident has not yet happened. As I said at the IAEA Board of Governors, last March, we are rolling a dice. And if this continues, then once they our luck will run out. So he's absolutely clear, although he did not say who was responsible for the, uh, the power failures, uh, for the pumps and so on. And just for the, for the sake of clarity, it is Ukraine uh, and the Ukrainian government has been switching off the electricity to the Zaporozhye uh, power plant. Uh, so he didn't say that in his presentation, but very clear what the potential results would be if this kind of behavior continues. Uh, now, uh, a couple of months ago, he met with uh, Zelensky. I think this was in March. Uh, so he met with Zelensky uh, and uh, they visited the Dnipro hydroelectric power station. Uh, and he said in his tweet uh, at that meeting, we met with Vladimir Zelensky today in Zaporizhia. Uh, we had a meaningful exchange of views on the protection of the Zaporizhia nuclear power plant and its personnel. I reaffirmed the IAEA's full support for Ukraine's nuclear facilities. But in response, or at the same time, uh, Zelensky said that uh, basically if the IAEA were not uh, able to get the Russians out of Zaporizhia, then Ukraine would resort to other alternative means. Um, so uh, that continues to be an extremely dangerous situation, therefore. So what was Britain's response to the, uh, the presentation by uh, Mr. Grossi uh, at the uh, UN Security Council? Well, here is the lovely Barbara Woodward, uh, who said that uh, just the usual thing, since the start of this full-scale invasion, Russia's reckless actions at nuclear facilities across Ukraine have threatened the safety of Ukrainians and the international community. Let me be clear, Russia's control of the Zaporizhia Nuclear power plant is illegal and continues to pose a serious threat to the facility's safe and secure functioning. Well, let me be clear, Russia is absolutely running, despite the fact that it's understaffed, is running that power plant in a safe manner at the moment and is protecting it at the moment. Uh, and uh, so this statement by Barbara Woodward is uh, utterly insane, in my opinion. Uh, particularly against the background that, of course, the UK has, has pumped in the depleted uranium, which is now um, clearly airborne from the information that we're seeing. So the hypocrisy of this woman and of UK is breathtaking. Yes. So uh, more propaganda uh, pushing a Western narrative here. So Nuclear Engineering International, tension mounts in run-up to UN Security Council meeting on Zaporozhye. So this was published uh, a couple of days ago. Uh, and, well, this is the, the kind of thing that they're saying. First of all, they're claiming that Russian military analysts suggest that retaking control of Zaporozhye nuclear power plant is one of the objectives of the coming Ukrainian offensive. Well, that may well be uh, the Russian view. But uh, this article then goes on to push the conspiracy theory from Ukraine that Russia is going to carry out a false flag on, on the nuclear power station there. 
so they're saying that Russian forces would strike Zaporozhye nuclear power plant and then report a radioactive leak in order to trigger an international probe that would pause the hostilities and give the Russian forces the respite they need to regroup ahead of the counteroffensive. Well, this, this, like, this is a common pro propaganda narrative here. We, yes. we can particularly see it against what we've reported earlier in today, today's news, that uh, the, we've got a mix of nuclear safety and war propaganda on behalf of Ukraine. It's, it's truly remarkable. Yes, so that report goes on to say this, uh, that Russia had disrupted the rotation of personnel of the permanent monitoring mission. Uh, Russia disrupted the rotation of personnel, so IEAE personnel couldn't get to, uh, in to monitor. Well, it's nothing to do with Russia. It's actually to do with Ukraine and the fact that Ukraine continues to shell the region. Um, so uh, this is from TASS a couple of months ago. Uh, five people killed, 15 injured uh, in U Ukrainian artillery strike on uh, Vasilyevka. Uh, this is in the region of Zaporozhye. That particular report was uh, also carried by France 24, uh, and AFP, uh, and republished by a number of others. So the continuing shelling in the area is what is mainly preventing UN uh, or IEA staff from getting into the area because they won't go uh, where, where there's that type of activity going on, of course. Um, so, you know, the propaganda continues. Uh, propaganda at all costs. Uh, the war must be won, as we shall see later, by the West. Um, well, this uh, was quite an interesting article I came across. It uh, was updated May the 19th, so it's a few days uh, ago, but it came from our old favourites, the Council on Foreign Relations, always there in the background where there's trouble. And the headline here, how much aid has the US sent to Ukraine? Here are six charts. Now, I decided just to take two of them uh, to illustrate the point. Uh, but here's the first one. And we've got huge sums of money, a total of 76.8 billion. Um, now, this is from um, to February the 24th. So this is quite stale. There's more billions gone in on top. But we've got, per, excuse me, we've got 3.9 billion, hum, what they call humanitarian, emergency food assistance, healthcare, refugee support, and other humanitarian aid. Financial, 26.4 billion budgetary aid. This is the money that is simply running Ukraine because Ukraine doesn't exist as a country. It can only exist by the finance coming in largely from the US and to some extent uh, UK and the EU. Security assistance, 18.3 billion. Weapons and equipment, 23.5 billion. Grants and loans for weapon and equipment, 4.7 billion. Uh, total military, 46.6 billion. And uh, of course, the reality is that most of that money is not going anywhere near Ukraine anyway. It's going into the American defense industry uh, and everybody's very happy at the profits. Uh, if we look at this other graph here, we can see the United States input against other institutions. So number two is the EU. Uh, that's uh, a little over 30 billion US dollars. Then comes UK uh, at 10 billion. And then we've got Germany, Japan, Netherlands, Canada dropping away right down to Latvia. Um, but we get the impression that billions of pounds available for war, not for helping people in a medical sense, not for improving the life of humanity, but let's get the death rolling. And um, uh, remember, as I've said, that these, uh, these figures um, have been topped up with more billions to take us to the end of uh, May 2023. So can I just ask, is this actual money transfers or is this promises that this well, will come in the future? Well, it, a lot of it is promises, Mike. This is, what I'm uh, this is what I'm saying about the military aid. This is not aid that goes into Ukraine. It's money that's spent in the US and then a few... Um, a few old pieces of military equipment are delivered to Ukraine. So the thing is a con, not only on the Ukrainians, but of course on the world public. And I'll comment on that a bit more. But let's think about those figures against the backdrop of who's pushing for the war. And let's bring our old friend Victoria Newland on screen. And even as you plan for the counteroffensive, which we have been working on with you, for some four or five months. We are already beginning our discussions uh, with the Ukrainian government and with friends in Kyiv, 
both in the civilian side and on the military side, about Ukraine's long-term future. So I hope people picked it up. What she says very casually is we have been working with Ukraine on the offensive for months. So this is not a war carried out by Ukraine. We are in the US-NATO war against Russia. And it's people like Newland with her little squeaky voice and her smart clothes that are busy prosecuting that war. Um, trying to lead the public in the US and the UK to believe it's the Ukrainians. No, this is proxy war that's going to be fought to the last Ukrainian for the benefit of Victoria Newland and her friends. And let's add a bit more because, of course, big money is to be made from the munitions, but also potentially from the rebuild of U Ukraine. Uh, let's have a look at some bankers talking about the delicious opportunities. Now, I believe this lady is an executive from Citibank, but I don't know her name. If any of our viewers or listeners can help out with our identifying her, I would like to know. Let's have a listen. I mean, I think that there sh we should come out of this room with a lot of optimism, right? Because we're hearing about all these reforms and preparing for the European Union integration, um, which is certainly going to address many of the issues we've been talking about for years um, that might have kept people from putting long-term capital into Ukraine. So I think that like you said at the very beginning, Secretary, that we have to, you know, we have to, we, we have to win this war. We have to get this resolved. I think that there is there is desire to put private capital. We need, the, we need the enabling capital now, but I know even with our own, our, with our own conversations internally in city that, and we do, have, um, you know, we do have lines to clients, we do have the ability to keep the business going to a certain extent, and thankfully because of, of the different development organizations that can, can provide some backing in the ECAs, we're gonna need that ECA multilateral development money, but I can't emphasize enough that the behavior and the products that they provide are gonna to have to change in order to mobilize the size of private capital that we need. We need to scale this um, at a level that is we haven't seen in the past. And so this, and I, I, I can't under, underscore, and I know my colleague here agrees with me in terms of some of these reforms and these new products and services that we're gonna to need to, to mobilize the private capital. So it's very clear there, we the bankers, we need to win this war and we're going to have to pour in the money, but we've got to get in the products and uh, that private funding in order to uh, get more profits out of the war at the end of the day. So very, very clear what's going on. But let's just really put the seal on it because uh, the Council on Foreign Relations was kind enough to tell us in very simple terms what's going on. Let's look at this. Every year, the United States sends billions of dollars in aid and much more than any other country to beneficiaries around the world in pursuit of its, quote, security, economic and humanitarian interests, unquote. So this is not about uh, love and uh, human kindness, helping countries overseas. The Americans are only putting in money if they get a security benefit or an economic benefit or some other benefit out of the funding. Mm. Okay, let's move on. If you like what the UK Column does, you would like to support us, please head over to community.ukcolumn.org uh, where you can join us as a member. That would be very much appreciated. And of course, you get access to uh, UK Column News Extra, which uh, will be happening after this program. Uh, you could pick something up at the UK Column shop, uh, but please do share material you find, especially from uh, ukcolumn.org and ukcolumnextracts.co.uk. Okay, now, um, Debbie, your blog... If you'd like to give that a, a quick advert. Yes, uh, my blog this week is about something that we're going to speak about in a bit, which is the Sky Covey One new injection and about what the UK, what the agenda is with life sciences. And I think you'll find that it's quite interesting what Jeremy Hunt's been up to. So please have a look at my blog. Okay, thank you for that. I'll just pop this one on screen because a lot of our viewers and audience are very interested in protecting children. And uh, a comment was made particularly about this Mail article exclusive, Duchess Anytime, Jeffrey Epstein's private diary reveals he met with Sarah Ferguson at his Manhattan mansion while under house arrest for having sex uh, with underage girls. I'm going to encourage people to go and have a look at this article uh, because there's some very interesting material 
in it, but we've got photographs showing Ferguson cuddling up to Epstein's driver and housekeeper. And then there's even um, internal uh, memos where <clears throat> they're asking, will the Duchess visit on Tuesday and Wednesday? Uh, to which uh, Epstein apparently replies, Duchess, she can come any time. So there's a lot of detail here. And I'm going to say, did uh, King Charles not know what was going on? And my personal opinion is, of course, he knew what was going on. But now the truth is starting to come to the surface. Uh, now, last week we talked about the uh, energy cap uh, reduction in for uh, June, July, sorry. And uh, well, the uh, Offjam off did publish that a couple of days ago. But I just wanted to highlight one particular aspect of what they were talking about. So uh, they mentioned that the new price cap is £2,074. And they said that the price cap reflects the cost of supplying energy to our homes and sets a maximum amount suppliers can charge per unit of energy bought on the global wholesale market. The updated figure shows the drop in wholesale prices we've seen on the forward market. Uh, but they go on to say this, uh, they say that gas prices have come down a lot in the last six months. Uh, and they say that prices for gas to be delivered this summer are nearly back to historic normal levels, falling almost 70% because uh, Europe has, is well supplied for the moment thanks to high storage levels after a mild winter. But they say uh, prices for delivery next winter, which energy suppliers pay as they need uh, to buy in advance, uh, are about twice as high as summer prices. Uh, and uh, so this is because of the risk of a cold winter in which European countries will need to pay more to secure alternative supplies and make up for Russian supply cuts from last year. So what Ofgem is doing here as the regulator, or are they an enabler? It's hard to say these days what the role of a regulator is. Um, what they are doing here is justifying the what most people regard as fairly obscene profits uh, being made by energy companies uh, who are taking adv advantage of the fact that the cost of generation uh, of the energy isn't costing them any more, but that the uh, scam of wholesale uh, energy markets allows them to make a massive profit at on the wholesale end. Now, they will then, of course, claim that they're not making any profit or they're making a small loss or they're making a very small profit on the retail end. Uh, but uh, nonetheless, that doesn't justify the massive profits that uh, are being made at the wholesale end. Uh, and uh, we continue to see those undoubtedly in the coming 12 months. Um, no worries as far as the regulator is concerned, however, and uh, deserved criticism. And of them, I would say. Yeah, no worries by the companies themselves because it's more oh, profits. No, absolutely. More absolutely. profits. Um, so, Debbie, let's come back onto health issues. Uh, and uh, what is this, ABC? Is this ABC or CNBC? NBC, I think. Yes. I think Sorry. it's NBC. Yeah. Well, I mean, first of all, the WHL tell us, you know, COVID isn't a problem anymore. Stand down, but we still have to be vigilant. And then all of a sudden, this story springs up. Uh, to alarm everybody. Isn't it like history repeating itself? Well, I don't think it seems to be working sec second time around. So China's facing a new COVID wave that could peak at 65 million cases a week. They're looking, I believe, at XBB, uh, Omicron uh, variant. But uh, as you can clearly see at the bottom of the article, it says people feel differently about this wave. Everybody's feeling a little bit belligerent. So I was confused, bearing in mind that we're standing down from the whole COVID uh, agenda. And I just want to make a caveat before I start this very, very important segment, I think, in saying that what we're looking at, what we're living in at the moment is an era of synthetic biology. OK, so if anybody wants a good a good piece of information on synthetic bi biology, have a look at what Celeste Solom is putting out. So with that caveat in mind, I was surprised to see that the MHRA have given regulatory approval to a new COVID jab. This one's called Vaccine Sky Covion. Now they call it Covion. Other people call it Covy one Now I just want to give you a very quick resume on this. This is what's called a preventative vaccine. And it's made by uh, two companies really, SK Chemicals and GlaxoSmithKline. The two things that you need to know about this is that these are multi-dose files. So again, We've not got just one multi-dose vial that's got to be diluted with a dilutant. We've got two multi-dose vials. Now, one dose, you can see, 
Um, it contains 25 micrograms of recombinant COVID-19 subunit nanoparticle produced in Asheria coli and Chinese hamster ovary by recombinant DNA technology. ASO5 adjuvant is composed of squalene now and polysorbate you might um, see there. Now this is very concerning because this injection is being rolled out in the UK. And I know that because my mother received a text to say that she could be invited for a, a booster, but it may contain squalene. As far as I know, no other injection contains squalene. So that would indicate to me that they're giving this to people that have already had other jabs, i.e. Pfizer, Moderna, AstraZeneca. So that's just important just to highlight. So if we look at how effective it is, we can see that actually the, the um, efficacy, safety and immunogenicity is not, has not been assessed. And when you look at the patient details and the uh, information leaflets, manufacturer's details, you can see that quite clearly there are a lot of holes. There is no experience with the use of Sky Covion in pregnant women from clinical trials. I mean, and I might like to say that the clinical trials were only involving just over 3,000 people, and they took place in Thailand, Vietnam, New Zealand, Ukraine, interestingly, Philippines, and South Korea. There's more holes with this injection in that we don't know the effects. Well, it's, it's not licensed for pregnant women. It's not licensed for children. As far as I'm aware, it's being rolled out in the UK first. And bearing in mind that this is a nanoparticle vaccine that's meant to cost a lot less and be stored at much easier storage conditions, no minuses, this injection originally was designed for people in developing countries. So why are they rolling it out in our country, in the United Kingdom, when we've all stood down from COVID? And why is it being given to people that have already had jabs? Because you'll be able to see from the next few slides that there is no data on interchangeability. There is also no data um, on uh, geno genotoxicity or carcinogenicity. So there's no data available. Now, specifically, the interchangeability of the vaccine with other COVID-19 vaccines, this is clearly going against manufacturers' recommendations. So are the MHRA not reading their own leaflets and their own instructions, or are they deliberately deliberately presuming that we're not going to read them because you can see that the efficacy also hasn't been assessed and this is an injection that takes place over two doses so it's no good the efficacy on one dose is negligible you have to have the second dose four weeks later now i'm really concerned about this on the GlaxoSmithKline website because the adjuvant is added by GlaxoSmithKline, so it's a combination of two companies on the GlaxoSmithKline website they describe sky covion gbp510 as a self-assembled nanoparticle vaccine candidate targeting the receptor binding domain of the SARS-CoV-2 spike protein for the parental SARS-CoV-2. So this is a very concerning move forward by the MHRA because I don't believe that anybody really quite understands what they're getting and what the serious adverse reactions could be. And if we're giving it over 18s, then we're giving it to young women who may be pregnant in the near future and we have no safety data. But let's follow the money back because when we follow the money back, it always comes back to the same people. And clearly we can see um, the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation up to their necks in SK Bioscience Company Limited, which of course are South Korean. And then if we just move on to the, the final slide from the Korea Herald, we can see that the Gates Foundation donates millions to the SK vaccine project. Now, very, very quickly, and maybe we'll talk about it in extra, but the E. coli reference is very, very important. And remember I said synthetic biology. So we could be looking at synthetic E. coli. 
And on that note, if anybody's coming to Cornwall, please don't eat mussels or oysters because we've had 11 plants closed down because of E. coli. And E. coli is very much in the news. So watch this space. Um, yeah, you asked why, Debbie, uh, why why it's being brought here. I, I would just gently suggest that uh, if it was originally designed for developing countries, well, developing countries largely have rejected uh, vaccination programs. They've got to ship their product somewhere, and I guess uh, there's there's still some kind of market. Uh, as you know, the the uh, health the Department of Health absolutely promoting um, the jabs still on their Twitter feed, get your boosters, get your, you know, so uh, this is possibly the only market available for it. Yeah, I, I tend to agree. But quite clearly, there's an awful lot we need to be looking at. And the interchangeability, you know, is is absolutely crucial because elderly people are getting this today, tomorrow, next week. What are they getting? Yes. Yeah, what are they getting? Well, we're going to turn our attention now to two things. One is Africa and the other one is Western values. Uh, let's start off with this really interesting clip, which is Congressman um, Gates, who is, a, who is questioning General Langley. Um, he's a U.S. Marine, but he's head of the U.S. Africa Corps. Uh, let's listen to this very, very interesting exchange. How many Africans has the United States military trained and equipped? We're, we're reaching around 50,000 okay. at least. And, and, and what percentage of the people we've trained end up participating in insurrections or coups against their own government? Very small number. Colonel Mamadé Dumbuya, that, that's him with a bunch of U.S. service members outside of our embassy. And just months after this photo was taken in 2021, he led a coup in Guinea and, and threw out the, the leader. Congressman, core values is what we start off with in IMA pro programs. Do we share those values with Colonel? Absolutely, in our, in our curriculum. He let it go. We do. So I guess the, the question is, why should U.S. taxpayers be paying to train people who then lead coups in Africa? How many governments have to be overthrown by people we train before you sort of get the message that our core values might not be sticking with everyone? So that's uh, pretty black and white. What do you make of it, Mike? 50,000, uh, and that's what the United States is doing. The UK is doing the same, of course, and probably not to the same scale, but nonetheless contributing to it. Helped by BBC Media Action, which takes control of the media in the target country. And then, oh dear, by some amazing coincidence, we get insurrection and trouble and violence. Well, of course, uh, one of the things mentioned there was our core values. And we know that core values have now become unified across the US and UK in particular. Let's have a look at the next video clip showing you our core values at work in Poland. Well, there you have it. And of course, uh, this agenda uh, forced into Poland and many other countries, but also, of course, Ukraine is now a full target. And many, many people are now seeing uh, Western core values for what they are. But what an incredible film clip with young people barking like dogs behaving like animals, and apparently we are to believe that this is normal uh, behaviour in a civilised society. So um, are, the, are the African nations taking the propaganda from the West? Well, it appears not anymore. Let's have a look at the film clip that we weren't able to show on Monday to do with the uh, Secretary General of the African 
National Com Congress as he's being interviewed by BBC Hard Talk. Rest, if Vladimir it was Putin. according to the ANC, we will want President Putin to be here even tomorrow. You would? To come to, come, to, come to our country. But, you uh, would welcome Vladimir Putin here right now, Of course, we will welcome A man who is being investigated for war crimes by the International Criminal Court. We will welcome him to come here as part and parcel of BRICS, but we know that we are constrained by the ICC in terms of uh, doing that. Putin is a head of state. Do you think that uh, a head of state can just be arrested anywhere? How many crimes have your country committed in Iraq? How many crimes... Have everyone else who's so vocal today committed in Iraq and Afghanistan? Have you arrested them? You, you, have know, not. you know the impact that You're this stand of yours... You're making a lot of noise about putting in state of working for peace between Ukraine and Russia, and you failed to resolve the war. Where are the weapons of mass destruction? Tony Blair went to Iraq and claimed that there are weapons of mass destruction. Did you see anybody standing against that in the United Kingdom and Britain? More than uh, millions of people have died in Iraq and yeah. Afghanistan, and there are no weapons of mass destruction. We know what the war is about Mr. Secretary General. between Russia and Ukraine. We want peace. That's what is important, so that the world can thrive. And organs and institutions of the world that institute world peace must not be conspicuous by their silence in deciding right. decisively. We, we, we don't so isn't it wonderful to see that uh, we've, we've now got other countries challenging the West on its hypocrisy and uh, they're particularly prepared to stand up against the BBC. I've got to say more arrogant interviewing by uh, Stephen Secure in that uh, uh, little segment, but uh, we understand the viewpoint of, of the Africans. We should also pay, you know, he's talking about Tony Blair taking Britain into uh, Iraq and so on, but let's not forget that the person that gave Tony Blair the justification for it uh, is currently pushing, as we mentioned on Monday's program, very, very hard uh, for uh, the same kind of intervention in Russia and China. Uh, and uh, that, of course, is Richard Dearlove, uh, who provided the so-called intelligence that brought us into Iraq. But uh, we have a little clip from South Africa as well, because uh, BBC Hard Talk didn't just interview the ANC. They uh, also interviewed the leader of uh, South Africa, well, described as a radical populist uh, economic freedom fighters party. And this is Julius Malema uh, also talking about Putin. Let's have a listen to this. South Africa right now calls itself non-aligned. In the context of the war, but these are two different things. South Africa is an ally of Russia. Now, the second question is, where does South Africa stand on the war? It says I'm a non-aligned in relation to war but Russia remains South Africa's friend. So we cannot create confusion around there. Don't create an impression that it is Malema who's going to come and create an alliance with Russia. But there are some very specific Actually, I will, if, if I may I will say go so. beyond that. I will go beyond the, the friendship with Russia and in the war, I will align with Russia and I will even supply the weapons to Russia because Russia is in a war with, an, with imperialism and any agenda that seeks to push back uh, imperialist agendas, it's well within the policies of the EFF. So that seems like that uh, approach to Russia runs across the political divides. Yeah, and, and it, it is amazing how people are now prepared to stand up in front of cameras and identify uh, the hypocrisy. Uh, we've know, we know we've got a growing audience in Africa, certainly in South Africa. So if you're watching us from Africa, you've got information or news that you'd like to share with UK Column, please do. Let's finish on the subject of further violence uh, in Kosovo. And of course, this has been reported over the last couple of days. I've chosen the Irish Times here. NATO peacekeeping troops hurt as ethnic Serbs clash with police in Kosovo. And uh, for bringing a little bit of the background from this article, at least, it says on Monday, Kosovan police and the NATO-led Kosovo 4K4 were seen protecting the municipality buildings in Svesikan, Sepo Savajek, Zubin, Botok and Mitrovica. 
four communes in the north that held early elections last month. Uh, these were largely boycotted by ethnic Serbs who formed the majority. Apparently, the turnout was only around 4%. Uh, but the key point is only ethnic Albania or other smaller minority representatives were elected into the mayoral posts and assemblies. And of course, this was uh, a dangerous situation. And then in this particular location, uh, Zvekan, they tried, according to this article, they... Uh, the Serbs tried to enter violently using tear gas in their efforts to get into the public buildings. Police responded with tear gas spray, uh, according to a statement. So um, let's have a look at the uh, BBC's reporting, their little film clip of the violence. Of course, the BBC always happy uh, to promote violence. Let's have a look. So pretty unpleasant stuff. Um, pay attention to the gentleman who is in quite drab clothes. He's he's largely got a bald head, but a little bit of hair on top, and he's uh, he's battering at the police lines. Uh, but what I was interested was that if you uh, look at uh, it, could be the same or another clip, but we just see a bit more. We detect something different about the start of the violence. So let's have a look at this second clip. So the key point is that the clip begins showing that actually the bulk of the protesters were sat on the ground. They weren't attacking the police lines at all. And it was only when the police lines moved forward and you could see people being pressurized, stepped on, that that violence erupted. So I was fascinated to see the BBC's editorial. But what was the fallout? Well, the fallout was that a lot of NATO troops, uh, some of them, I believe, were Italian and some of the police forces who were present were injured. And this is, a um, if we bring this up on screen to uh, run, this is a little uh, fo uh, drone footage of uh, one of the areas where the injured were, were brought. And we can see by the numbers on the ground that there was uh, significant injuries amongst the uh, NATO and the police forces. So utterly tragic. But if we bring in the label, wherever, wherever NATO is active, there is peace. We actually get a good idea of what's really going on here. Yeah. So we'll end there. We're going to say big, big thank you to Debbie for joining us today. A very big thank you to all of our viewers, wherever you are in the world. And as I say, we're very keen to get more information in from not only Eastern Europe, but also from Africa. So if you're watching us from Africa, please do get in touch with us. And uh, at the end of the day, uh, we've got to speak out to uh, try and establish some peace in the world, Ukraine in particular, but also to, to expose this utter hypocrisy of the United Kingdom and the Western nations uh, when it comes to war and peace in the world. We'll, en we'll end there. Thank you very much for joining us. Um, for UK column members, we'll have an extra time in just a few moments. Thank you. Bye-bye.